Welcome to the Gaggle Podcast, where we bring you inside the newsroom to talk Arizona politics beyond what's in print. I'm Yvonne Winget Sanchez, a national reporter at the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com. Joining me this week at the Arizona Republic's main newsroom in downtown Phoenix are... Richard Rellis, reporter. Dennis Wagner, I'm a reporter. Ryan Randazzo, I'm a reporter. This week on The Gaggle, we've got a lot of reporters. Yeah, that sounded like a To Tell the Truth segment. Will the real reporter. (laughs) This week on The Gaggle, U.S. cities and counties have joined a nationwide lawsuit against corporations that make opioids. They're seeking to recoup tax dollars that were spent fighting Arizona's painkiller addiction epidemic. Several of them are here in Arizona. The bribery case involving a water company, a regulator, and lobbyists captured the attention of political journalists and attorneys around the state. The case wrapped up last week and is in the hands of the jury. What did we learn from it, and is the federal investigation isolated to just this case? But first, thousands of children have been separated from their parents, some as young as a few months old, under a policy that directed the Border Patrol to separate families at the border. The policy under President Donald Trump's administration sparked an international outcry and forced the president to reverse course. Some children are being reunified with their parents, and the first lady was in town this week. She seemed to try to set the reset the narrative uh, as to how the White House was handling this issue. Uh, what did we learn from her visit to Arizona, Richard? Well, she seemed to want to bring a a human face to the issue. Uh, Obviously, her visit was well publicized, uh, and her speaking to two sets of groups, a group of border law enforcement officials where they told her about the trials and tribulations on the border and how they try to actually rescue migrants, uh, and uh, the, the, the drug corridors and the traffic that comes across. So she saw that end of it down in southern Arizona. She comes up to Phoenix, Uh, with some media in tow and goes through a shelter and uh, sees children. So I think it was sort of putting both sets of facts out there that, yes, the border is a dangerous place. A lot of drugs and uh, trafficking and human trafficking comes across. But there is also the the human side of it. And Yvonne, you were with her. You were were the pool reporter assigned. Uh, What was it like in the shelter? So the shelter here in Phoenix was um, filled with dozens and dozens of children's children their ages ranged from um, you know a couple months old all the way up to from what I could tell maybe eight nine years old uh, we her mo- her motorcade pulled into the facility right off uh, the I-17 in Campbell um, there were a lot of protesters outside uh, the facility itself which is fenced in and kind of hidden away you wouldn't necessarily know that it was a shelter um, looked a lot like any typical elementary school, small campus might look like, um, except it was tucked in the middle of a neighborhood. It had a playground, it had a basketball court, it had a swimming pool, it had a little home for a tortoise. Um, the different rooms were segregated based on age. Um, she spent some time talking to the facility staffer. She asked a lot of the same questions that she asked to the um, Border Patrol officials down in in Tucson, pretty basic questions. How many children? How old are they? How long have they been here? And her questions were answered. She didn't really seem um, like she 
was engaged, I would say, with those officials. But when she stepped into the classrooms for one-on-ones with uh, the, the, the actual classrooms and to talk to the kids, her eyes lit up. She was smiling. She was speaking to them in their language. She was talking to them about um, who's princes, who, which ones are princesses, and their hands would shoot up. And and uh, who likes soccer and do you like to dance and tell me about your projects and the kids seemed pretty um, happy like they seemed like everyday kids and it's clear I think from her encounters with them that their lives obviously have been disrupted but it is unclear the effects that this will have long term for them. I wonder if they knew who she was if there was more media coverage, maybe they would have. But the thing that strikes me about the whole event was there isn't really any news that came out of it. There was no policies, no decisions, no new actions, no anything. But there was just this swarm of media coverage. You send the first lady to the border at a time when the country's, country's in turmoil over that issue. And what you get is a lot of images, a lot about perception, but not a lot of real news. When she touched down back in Washington, D.C., she issued a statement that called for Congress to do its job and to pass comprehensive immigration reform. She didn't really say what that was, and it was clear from that statement that there was no onus on the White House to actually insert itself and call for something other than border patrol, yeah, uh, border, and, and a border wall and un- more border security measures. Unfortunately, nationally, I mean, it was it was big news here in Arizona. Nationally, it was overshadowed by the, the shooting at the at the newsroom in, in Maryland. So whatever whatever national image she was trying to push, push out did get pushed to the back of the agenda again. And I will say, going back to the facility in Tucson where she first landed, this was a short-term holding facility where um, people who are recently detained are held while they're processed. The media went into this center. It was very grim holding cells, block style cells like you would see at any kind of jail or you know, uh, facility holding some type of criminals. Um, and there were six boys and I will never forget the looks or, you know, on their faces or the lack of looks. I mean, just completely expressionless. And here you have arguably the most important woman in the country uh, entering this facility. And they looked at her, and they might not have known who she was um, briefly. And then they looked back to their movie. They were watching a Spanish-language movie, Fernandan. It's about a a bull who makes this daring escape um, to prevent becoming, like, a bullfighter. And um, it was on mute, and um, they were—they seemed just really mesmerized by the by the movie and the the Spanish language captions that were playing across the bottom. And they just—you know—they wore boots. They didn't have shoelaces, and they just looked completely traumatized. Was there like the normal things you would hear of kids running around? Um, one little boy, he was a three-year-old, I think he was a, uh, from Costa Rica, he bolted out of one of the holding facilities. They had the doors open. Um, so he came out and his, uh, I think it was his mom, she was young, she came out and lugged him back in. And for a brief moment, the first lady made eye contact with him and big smile. And she said, hi, how are you? And it's like, what a question. Like, under normal circumstance, that would be, a, it's just that you just say it. 
in this instance, it was just so striking, I think, to myself and to everyone around. It's like, you know, how are you even supposed to answer that? And, and the thing is, in the news business, this event is what we call a dog and pony show because they have pre-planned this event. They have made sure that it's cleaned up at the site. We don't know what preparations they made, how they changed things, anything like that. Um, we do know it's probably sanitized from what the real life experience might have been the day before or the day after. I will say at the at the shelter, they want to be called not a detention center, but a shelter uh, here in Phoenix where the, the classes are. It smelled very freshly cleaned, and I did notice what appeared to be brand spanking new items that had just been bought. The stiff white tags were seen peeking out of rugs and um, toy holding bins, and that was my impression, too, that they certainly had prepared for this visit. And as far as dog and pony shows go, it is interesting that uh, Governor Ducey and his wife also visited a, uh, a facility with no advance notice. The media wasn't invited to tag along uh, as opposed to Melania Trump, which the media definitely was invited uh, along for a large portion of it. I don't know what that means politically. Uh, Governor Ducey has only spoken about his visit to the shelter in one interview I could find, uh, not with us, uh, but saying that he just wanted to make sure it was safe and secure and that the children were being treated uh, correctly. which I'm not sure if that's exactly why the First Lady came as well, uh, but we didn't get to see the governor interact with the, uh, with the children. How is this playing with everyday voters um, from, from all persuasions? I mean, do we have a sense of um, how they're feeling about the, 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 the policy of separating these kids from their parents? We can divine a bit by how politicians are speaking about it, that they might be the best people to, to gauge how they think their voters uh, see the issue. So some Republicans are seeing it as a matter of security. This is an ugly but necessary policy in order to keep this nation secure and deter families from trying to make this crossing. Democrats are portraying it as a humanitarian crisis that nothing uh, warrants, and at the, at the very least, crossing the border illegally or trying to seek asylum here, nothing warrants a parent being separated from the child that this isn't the kind of country we are. Right. It is so polarized that not only are people, first of all, people, the average people, when you talk about Republicans, Democrats talking about it, you're talking about politicians. But if you talk about the average people on the street, they're so polarized, they're basically absorbing information through filters, either right-wing media or liberal media sometimes. Um, And so they have a solidified view, and they're looking at it through that prism. And then you get the politicians appealing to them through the same kind of a prism, and that's just how it's working now. I spent some time with um, Joe Arpaio and uh, Republican Women's Club in North Scottsdale recently, and he spent quite a bit of time playing up um, this notion that the feds had ripped off this this tent city idea from him and that he was the hardliner on illegal immigration long before Donald Trump entered the scene. And he had some pretty harsh words for the parents who brought the kids here and said they should be punished for child abuse, for risking their children's lives and bringing them here to this country. And that line was met with resounding applause. I mean, there, I don't know that there was really anyone in that room of many dozen people who disagreed with him. But on the flip side, I spent some time last night with Representative Kirsten Sinema, who's running for the Democratic nomination for the U.S. Senate. 
the question of illegal immigration and border security did not come up once in the context of families. It did come up in the context of opioid abuse and trafficking. The, the, uh, the response to Joe's, George, Sheriff Arpaio's uh, comments, um, it just strikes me. I, I've always been fascinated when I've covered border issues for some 30 years to ask people of any political stripes one question, and that is, if you were a Mexican, poor Mexican family living down in the mountains somewhere, if you were in Guatemala or El Salvador, and you had no means of survival, basically, would you try to come to the United States? Would you bring your children to the United States? So, and, and the answer is always unilaterally left, whether they're Republicans, Democrats, whatever, whoever they are, it's yes. But at the same time, once a family does try to come here and cross the border with kids, then they can be viewed as committing a criminal act and culpable for child abuse or whatever you want to call it. Yeah, it gets to that sort of original sin concept, and it's if they hadn't tried to come across, there would be no problems. Uh, and I think th the government has tried uh, f for decades to try to make crossing the border so hard and onerous that no person would would do it. And now we're seeing uh, not only is it not deterring people, it's bringing a new class, of, a new type of people, uh, families are coming across uh, with kids. Uh, and that's a new problem. And now we've hit a point where separating a parent from their child for the uh, offense of crossing the border illegally, uh, is that a valid policy choice? Where I think it maybe in decades past it would have seen as completely over the top. Now it is just seen as something that is worth considering. But looking on the other side of that, uh, the defenders of President Trump's policy will say, hey, when a criminal is arrested in the United States, that person is separated from family. That person's placed in jail and that person's kid does not see him. And so there's, there's that side of the story too. And I talked with uh, former Sheriff Joe Arpaio specifically about that issue. And that, that is exactly what he said. I asked him um, about the detention of um, the Figueroa couple. And this was a case from nine years ago uh, during a workplace raid uh, at a car wash here in Phoenix. A, a couple was arrested uh, involving forgery of documents. And uh, their, their daughter watched the arrest play out on the news. And she was traumatized by being separated from her parents for three months. And I caught up with her to, to talk a little bit about that experience because she's clearly watching the, these recent child separations happening. And I asked Arpaio, hey, do you have any regret? He remembered this case specifically, but his answer to me, his response to me to that question was, families are separated all the time. Look at all the people that I locked up in Tent City and in my jails, and they're separated because of the choices of their parents. Yeah, and we often get accused of bringing out the, the, the child crying that their parents were separated, especially in that case, Catherine Figueroa, and trotting them out to gain public sympathy uh, as a ploy. Uh, and there's a side that says, uh, that's what they get. They're, they're, they broke the law, that's what they get.
Ryan, you spent a lot of time in the courtroom reporting on a story involving whether $31,500 paid to a former utility regulator's wife um, and a failed real estate deal uh, constitute federal crimes of bribery and conspira conspiracy that could send four people to prison. These are well-known people. The case involves a former Arizona corporation commissioner. The government asserts that um, a corporation commissioner helped pass a rate increase uh, and a beneficial tax policy for this water company, Johnson Utilities, in exchange for cash paid to his wife and an attempt to have uh, the water company owner, George Johnson, um, fund the land deal. Set the table for us. The case is in the hands of the jury. What are they weighing specifically? Well, the jury, one of the key points in this is whether or not Sherry Pierce, she was, she is married to Gary Pierce, who was the regulator, and he regulated Johnson Utilities, and she was paid uh, $3,500 a month for nine months. And one of the keys in the case is whether those payments were just a flat-out bribe uh, to, to persuade her husband to vote for rate increases at the utility, or whether she was doing actual work. And uh, the defense, I thought, made an interesting uh, theory or, or uh, pitch in this case. And they said she was working to collect clean elections contributions for the Republicans who were running for the CorpCom in 2012. So in essence, their defense is she didn't commit the uh, felony of bribery because she was committing the misdemeanor of inappropriately collecting clean elections campaigns. Those are supposed to be collected on a volunteer basis. Um, someone who violates that law could be subject to a fine that's 10 times the amount that they were paid. So Sherry Pierce could, if Clean Elections Commission wanted to take this up, uh, not only Sherry, but also the person paying her, George Johnson, the utility. And, it, and it's also a misdemeanor crime in Arizona to um, knowingly uh, be paid or pay someone to collect those $5 contributions. Meaning the candidate she collected signatures for could also be in trouble from the Clean Elections Commission? Only, my understanding of the law is only if the candidate knew. And in this case, it sounds like um, the defense is setting up this theory that George Johnson was paying Kelly Norton, she was married to lobbyist Jim Norton, and uh, through Kelly, Sherry Pierce was paying those two women to work on campaign issues. And through the testimony, they've really sort of muddied the waters because both women were supposed to be working on uh, county issues out in Pinal County and also the Corporation Commission races. And they never really said how much of their work was committed to the CorpCom and how much to Pinal County. But those were the two issues that Mr. Johnson had an interest in. We all tried to get to Kelly Norton a year ago when um, the indictments first came down to try to get her side of the story. We were hearing the um, assertions that she was a you know jilted ex-wife and she was seeking revenge on Jim Norton. And um, really, we all wanted to hear her side of the story. You were in the courtroom for part of her testimony. What was that like? Well, um, Honestly, in, in my opinion, she came off as believable. She uh, told the jury a, 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 under questioning that she didn't come forward with this information amid her divorce. She was getting a divorce because her husband had cheated on her at least two times, we learned through testimony. And the divorce was proceeding. And amid that, so months into the divorce, she was visited by the FBI. They stopped by her house. Her, her teenage daughter was home. And suddenly she was being questioned about another case and she was fearful of going to prison. 
and she didn't share any information with the FBI at that time. She went and consulted her personal attorney who advised her to take the information she had regarding this case and bring it to the FBI uh, in exchange for immunity so that she could keep herself out of prison because she was afraid that through their investigation of another matter that they would turn this up and, and she could be prosecuted. And the defense took great lengths to sort of highlight that she was a, a bitter person seeking revenge. They showed Facebook posts where she talked about karma and really tried to paint her as, as a bitter wife, but they were cautious also not to bring up the infidelity too much either. What's the demeanor of these people in the courtroom? Are they completely stoic or are they emotionally responsive, at least visually? Well, it was pretty interesting because the four defendants all, of course, had to sit near each other, and it's not clear that they're really buddy or, or chummy anymore, um, although through testimony we know that they were quite close uh, in the 2010 to 2012 time frame. The Pierces would often talk with their attorneys. They would often talk, husband and wife, so they would often talk to each other. At times, they would even giggle. Um, there was some testimony that was a little bit funny at times, um, and they would show some emotion. Um, Jim Norton showed up in the middle of the trial with a sling on his arm. Apparently, he hurt himself mountain biking, um, and he was pretty stoic. And George Johnson, for almost the entirety of the trial, looked straight ahead. So if you can picture a courtroom, and the judge is in the middle, and the jury is off to one side, and George Johnson stared directly at a wall almost the entire time. And then in, in the closing testimony, he did turn his chair 90 degrees, so he was looking at the jury. But for almost the whole time, he had his... He had his gaze 90 degrees away from the jury, looking at nobody, looking at a door that um, some of the, the court aides would, would come in and out of at times. What was the star witness, Kelly Norton, doing? Well, she was only there uh, on the witness stand for a couple of days, and apparently she had a friend attending the trial on her behalf, um, and there were some questions from attorneys and the judge out of earshot of the jury about that, but she wasn't in the room the rest of the time. Um, she was tearful when she was talking about her divorce, and especially when she was talking about her daughter. And again, my, my personal observation is that when she was tearful, it was at times when it would have been sad to think about that, just sad to think about your child learning about your divorce and that the FBI was investigating your family amid that. It didn't seem ungenuine to me. She didn't cry at inappropriate times. She didn't um, really overemphasize uh, the emotional aspect, but, but she was tearful um, talking about her family matters. And not to get all Nancy Grace here, but how did the jury react? Did, could you read the tea leaves of how they're looking at this? It was extremely difficult to read those folks. They were hearing such complex testimony, and unfortunately, they didn't get a great narrative from the beginning. So all of us, we have the benefit that we read the indictment. And we knew who these people were. So we knew what a utility, you know, Johnson Utilities was. We knew Gary Pierce regulated Johnson Utilities. We understood that his job was judicial, quasi-judicial, that it would be inappropriate for him to have a relationship with that company. We understood who Jim Norton was. These people came in completely blind. They didn't perhaps even know much about the Corporation Commission. That would be normal. So the attorney spent a long time just explaining what the commission was, but they didn't have the background of who all these individuals were and then have the narrative of what exactly they were being charged with until opening statements and then they had four defense attorneys who did a pretty darn good job at clouding this whole issue so it was complicated and then the defense attorneys had what i think is an easy job make it more complicated to raise doubt so it wasn't always scintillating though either because i think you mentioned once before that a juror actually fell asleep during some of the presentation there were complaints so many of the folks in the gallery 
were watching the jury, of course, to look for reaction. And there was one gentleman in particular who it appeared that he was dozing off. And it would be difficult to blame him because we're talking about the Corporation Commission, which is not thrilling theater. Very few people uh, attend Corporation Commission hearings. And not only was it about the Corporation Commission, but it was about one of the most complicated cases I've ever seen there, this tax policy issue. So the jury had to learn about the commission, learn about a rate hike that took years to work through. And then they had to learn about this tax issue. And this one gentleman did appear to be dozing off. Defense attorneys asked to have him stricken. Um, the judge didn't agree to that. There seemed to be a moment, I just remember you coming back from the courtroom and describing this to me. Um, at one point, they, it was like schoolhouse rock, right? I mean, they had to describe the role of a lobbyist and the, you know, how lobbyists, what, what lobbyists do, what their role is in democracy. I mean, how was that how was that received? I think the defense attorney for Jim Norton, whose primary job is a lobbyist, I think he was really concerned that the jurors were going to find him guilty just because of the job he has. I mean, he must have done some sort of uh, research that indicates people do not like lobbyists. So his opening <laughs> statement really focused on how important lobbyists are in society. And he referenced I thought laughably, uh, he referenced the Red for Ed protest down at the state capitol and said, you know, if teachers had better lobbyists, we wouldn't have had this protest because <laughs> these teachers had to come talk to lawmakers themselves. If they had a good lobbyist, we wouldn't have had this. And I thought, wow, you're really going a long way to defend character, character in this guy's career. An argument for the smoke-filled back room. Excellent. Right, right. <laughs> and we should note before the end of this segment that um, there is so much intense uh, interest in this case, in part because the figures obviously involved. Jim Norton is a very well-known lobbyist in town, is uh, close to Governor Doug Ducey, runs in the chamber circles, um, has had a, a very successful career as a lobbyist, and we're told hopes to one day return. What would be the repercussions and we're not jumping to the conclusion. But if there is a conviction here, or are convictions here, what are the repercussions? The first thing is it really uh, sort of taints the credibility of the Corporation Commission. We, we had a commissioner who had to resign a couple of years ago because she retained her job as a lobbyist for people that had business at the commission. We had another commissioner who had a year-long court battle over text messages that he deleted, and many people would say inappropriately because they were t public records. And then you have a former commissioner uh, convicted of bribery, raising rates on uh, 35,000 people because he his family accepted money. I think the five people who s remain corporation commissioners have a really tough time uh, gaining public trust. That That's the first thing that comes to mind for me. Yeah, and part of it might be, I mean, if you're a, a Democrat running for corporation commission and there is a guilty verdict, your chances of being elected have possibly uh, gone up. Uh, does this get into the deal of dirty money, you know, uh, the influence of money in politics? Uh, and then the Republican brand, again, this is assuming he's guilty. Does it just overall taint not just the personalities involved, but the brand as Republicans in, in power? Well, I will say right after the indictments, um, many of Norton's clients fled uh, association with his firm. Uh, they, they got new lobbyists and... Uh, you know, it, it's that whole guilt by association factor. Uh, you might still remain friends, you know, with these folks and on good terms, but you, uh, it, it would be damaging in some instances to, to, to keep them on as your hired guns down at the state capitol.
Dennis, you wrote a story about Arizona cities and towns that have joined uh, these lawsuits against opioid manufacturers. What is the intent of these lawsuits, and uh, what are you hearing from Arizona officials on the ground about why they're joining? Well, the, the intent of the lawsuit is pretty simple, to get the opioid manufacturers and distributors to pay for the just enormous health care costs and ju uh, justice system costs that resulted from an epidemic that um, has killed in the, in the last year alone over 50,000 people with the overdoses and other problems. Um, there are now something like, it's hard to tell from looking at federal court like records, there's so many cases filed, but it looks like around 1,500 cases filed by cities, counties, uh, Indian nations, other groups against the major manufacturers, including Purdue, um, the manufacturer of OxyContin. Um, the, it looks like they're basically looking for money. It's analogous, I think, to the huge lawsuit uh, maybe a decade ago against big tobacco um, corporations where government entities wanted to pay for the medical treatment of cancer and other medical costs associated with tobacco and they went after them and they collected billions of dollars and then they spread it out and divided it up. Um, that's what they're after here, where it's going to go and what's going to happen. It all's being consolidated into a single case in northern Ohio that's going to be a whopper of a federal lawsuit once it goes to trial, assuming it goes to trial. Do you have a sense of how it could play out? I mean, based on the tobacco lawsuit? I, I mean, it's it's a pretty simplistic sense, but it's a sense that um, if they're successful um, bringing a case to a judge or a jury, depending on how it goes, um, and they win, it could be a huge amount of money. Now, uh, as I understand it, Purdue has already been... Uh, um, sued by the federal government and forced to pay something like $600 million in penalties for misleading the public about um, painkillers. The, the basic premise here, for those who maybe aren't quite familiar with it, is maybe uh, I think about 15, 20 years ago, they started producing tremendous amounts of um, painkillers, Oxycontin and, and other painkillers, and not telling the public the truth about how addictive they were, not even telling physicians. So the prescriptions went wild, and in the aftermath of the prescriptions, um, people became addicted, and then they there were drug overdoses with the prescription drugs, but they also, when they started cutting off prescription drugs, people were turning to heroin and fentanyl and other street drugs, and they were overdosing and dying from that as well. So there's just tens of thousands of people dying every year because of this. So why wait until now to to join this lawsuit? I mean, we've we've been feeling the effects of this crisis for years. Well, I believe the lawsuit was only filed a year ago, and different cities are climbing aboard at different rates. In Arizona, the most recent one, the one that prompted me to write the story, was just little county, Cochise County, down in the south uh, east corner of the state on the Mexican border. They all of a sudden said, hey, we too, we want to be in this lawsuit. Now, most of the towns and cities in Arizona seem to be standing back and letting, they have risk pools so that their costs, their insurance costs are borne by risk pools. And the, the risk pools for all the counties in the state and the risk pool for the cities in the state already have joined this lawsuit. So they're involved. The city of Phoenix sued. Um, some other agencies in Arizona have sued, but a lot of them look like they're letting their risk pools handle it. Yeah, and some of this will be like, to go on the tobacco uh, parallel, 
it's did the company know? Because I mean, they were from stories I've seen that they were telling doctors not only is it uh, were they hiding that it was addictive, but they were def definitively saying this is not addictive, this is safe. And did the company realize that you could overcome what was supposed to be a time release of the narcotic by crushing it? Uh, did the company know and keep doing it? I guess is the is the question that will be raised in court. Right, and the basic uh, counts of this lawsuit are um, fraud, racketeering, and negligence. And racketeering suggests a criminal conspiracy to make money off of poor patients, essentially. So uh, this case gets compared to the tobacco lawsuits, and one result of that were those verdicts were, you know, were the millions of dollars that states got um, for a variety of things, healthcare. Um, uh, scholarships. But in this case, um, what I'm trying to say is people didn't have a lot of sympathy that the tobacco companies had to pay hundreds of millions of dollars. But in this case, these companies do serve customers who have a legitimate, there's some folks with a legitimate need for these painkillers. Is there any concern of what happens to them amid a lawsuit like this? Well, and as a matter of fact, because I've covered veterans affairs for several years now, I get calls every week from veterans who are just bent out of shape because they're being, their painkillers are being taken away. They're in agony and they want to send them to a pain management class that's not working and they're really frustrated by it. And it's, and it's a horrible element of this thing. On the other hand, those tobacco users I think that a jury and possibly the public looks at it and goes, well, they made a choice, and actually people had kind of warned them this wasn't a good idea to be smoking or using chew or whatever anyway. But with these patients of, of um, the opioids, they are being prescribed these medications, at least at first oftentimes, by their physicians who are trying to help them, and they've, done, they've made no decision that's questionable, and yet they're being victimized. And so it, I can imagine a jury being even less sympathetic, even though the opioid's purpose was possibly to serve a therapeutic reason. For our final segment, what records or phone calls have not been responded to this week? Richard. Well, I'm trying not to take this personally, uh, but Governor Doug Ducey's people uh, have vowed to me that they would send me any events he's doing on his campaign schedule, especially those uh, out of Maricopa County. Uh, so I missed uh, the opportunity uh, two weekends ago to visit Yuma and Lake Havasu City with the governor. And uh, this Saturday, he and other uh, officials uh, were making a campaign stop in Prescott, which would have been nice. It was kind of nice in Prescott. So uh, I'm hoping uh, that we can get his campaign schedule, his uh, public events, and that they'll let me see how he's uh, campaigning for votes outside of the county, hopefully in cooler climes than Arizona. I really want to be in his Flagstaff or Alpine visit. Ryan. Uh, well, amid this bribery trial, uh, the town manager down in Florence filed a police report and said that George Johnson, the water utility owner, had, had issued a serious threat to him 
Uh, apparently, he took a picture of one of Johnson's trucks that was hauling uh, sewage from one place to another. Possibly it was leaking. He took a picture. The truck driver took a picture of the, the town manager, and Mr. Johnson placed a call to him. And uh, we have asked for that police report, and the town has inexplicably uh, denied our request. And then they said they passed it off to the attorney general's office to investigate, and they also have denied our request for something that's clearly a public record, that police report, so we could tell folks uh, what exactly might have been said during that phone call. So I'm still uh, patiently waiting for that one. When, when they deny that public records request, and there's just, I don't, I don't know of any argument that uh, justifies it, what are they saying in terms of why they're denying it? Well, they technically didn't even respond to the written request that we sent, <laughs> uh, but, but they have uh, responded on the phone with pretty much a no, uh, that this is a matter that's under investigation. Um, but they haven't given an official written response to, to the request. I am still waiting for records that uh, stem from a request back in April of 2017 from the Department of Administration. These are underlying records tied to workplace complaints. Um, Megan Rose, the spokeswoman for the uh, Department of Administration, uh, had told me months ago that the uh, first batch of records were being reviewed by the Attorney General's office. The Attorney General's office recently said, uh, no, we, um, we don't have those records, and those were kicked back to the Department of Administration. Megan has since told uh, reporter Craig Harris that we would have those records on July 4th. Interesting date. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> That's it for today. Thank you for listening to the Gaggle Podcast. You can find me on Twitter at Yvonne Winget. At Relis Writings. At Utility Reporter. At AZ Rover. <laughs> Sorry, I got confused. <laughs> oh, at AZ Rover. That's Dennis Wagner. Thanks to the politics team and also our producer, Sierra Juarez. Please subscribe to the show and review it on Apple Podcasts. SoundCloud, Stitcher, or Google Play. See you next week.